0: Jesus made bold claims and the people of his time were trying to figure out who he really was. His claims left them confused and sometimes angry. Through his powerful I am statements, Jesus invites us to gain a fresh perspective and a deeper understanding of who he truly is. Each statement gradually reveals the divinity and character of Jesus. As we piece them together, we see how knowing him changes everything. We know who he is because he said, I am. Well, welcome to Cornwall Church today. It is good to have you with us, whether you're joining us online or at our Skagit campus. And those of you in the room, may I say right now, you look absolutely fantastic. Better than I've ever seen. It is good to have you with us as we continue in on our summer uh, series. Uh, some of you are aware that about, I don't know, every 18 to 24 months, we take a trip to Israel, and one of my, one of my favorite things on those trips is an optional experience that we give to people uh, to walk through Hezekiah's Tunnel. And the reason I love it is because it's a little bit of, uh, not a little it's completely biblical history, but there's also this very safe controlled um, archaeological adventure, kind of an Indiana Jones thing without snakes or eels or spiders. And um, it's also to be able to be um, hands-on right in the middle of what was at the time the most advanced water technology of its time. 2,700 years ago, King Hezekiah commissioned a tunnel to be built from the Gihon Spring into the pool of Siloam so that Jerusalem would be able to have water no matter what the circumstances, if they were under siege or in a battle. And so they uh, commissioned this tunnel, and it was chiseled out through solid rock coming from both ends, and they met in the middle. It's an amazing thing, and it's 27, 27, uh, or uh, about 1,750 feet long. And it has remained untouched for the last 2,700 years. So there's no, there's no um, uh, ADA specifications. There's no emergency exits. There's no ventilation. There's no electricity. It's still the same tunnel, and we can walk through that. Uh, it requires that you walk through water. It requires that you're not terribly claustrophobic, and it requires that you have a headlamp. And I always lead the group, and usually I get about halfway through, and then I stop, and I ask everybody, turn off your headlamps. And it gets so dark. It's the darkest place that I have ever experienced because there's no ambient light whatsoever. There are no screens in there. There are no exit signs. There's nothing to have any kind of light at all. And your eyes just simply do not adjust. And in that kind of darkness, it conceals a lot of things. And yet just a little bit of light can reveal enormous amounts in the darkness. Now, we're in this series where Jesus gives us these these little moments where he turns on lights, as it were, to kind of reveal who he is, that which has been concealed, that which has been hidden about his nature, about who God is, about what life is all about. And we've been looking at these statements, these I am statements, the Greek uh, phrase of ego eimi, where he says, I am, I am this, I am that. These I am statements primarily recorded in the book of John. And we'll be looking at, uh, you know, seven of these in John and then a couple of others outside of John. But in the midst of that, he gives these statements, and only the Gospel of John records them. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, John starts off his Gospel with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. And through him, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that had been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness has not overcome it. Another translation says the darkness has not understood it. Now, that phrase, those first five verses of the book of John, hold incredibly profound theological truths, and yet they can be a little bit difficult to understand. It can be a little cryptic. It can be kind of concealed because you wonder, is he the word or is he the light? Is he with God or is he God? Does he bring life? And all of those things. And just to make sure that there was no doubt, no question whatsoever, Jesus clarifies so that there wouldn't be this uncertainty. Later in John chapter eight, and this is the I am statement we'll look at today. In John chapter eight, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me We'll never walk in darkness. We'll never walk in darkness, but we'll have the light of life. Now that's a profound statement. He is either incredibly arrogant, narcissistic, egotistical, or he is one that must be considered above all else. I am the light of the world. He would say that my life will bring illumination, my life will bring truth, my life will bring help, it will bring hope, my life will bring, bring life to you and light to this world. And as profound and extreme and radical as that statement is, he goes on to say those who follow me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. What's even more amazing is that when he was talking to those followers in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, He says to them not, I am the light of the world, but he says to his followers, you are the light of the world. This is the moment you've been waiting for. Now you can activate your glow stick. Because what this does is this represents what Jesus had in mind, that in this dark world, that everywhere one of his followers would be, there would be light That those who had experienced his light, his truth, would take light into the world and bring truth there. Those who had experienced his hope and his help would bring light into the world and bring hope and help into this world. Those who had the light of life, wherever they would go, they would bring the light. Yes, Jesus said, I am the light of the world, but he said to his followers, in this dark world, you too. Or the light of the world. Now, this concept of light is seen throughout the pages of Scripture. I mean, from cover to cover, there are hundreds of references to light. And John, in his gospel, he references light 23 different times. I mean, when you understand that, when you begin to see the the the, the expanse of the use of this, you begin to understand it is a most important term metaphor in reality. This light in Jesus, and in our lives. In fact, throughout the pages of scripture, God uses the, the, the picture of light to describe himself. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. In James, it says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. It's his very character, it's his very nature. His glory is light. The Bible talks about goodness, righteousness, purity, holiness as light. Light is seen as that which reveals, which, which illuminates, which brings understanding and wisdom and truth. And throughout, you, you've seen these experiences throughout the, the scripture. When Moses came down from meeting with God on Mount Sinai, his face was like a massive glow stick and he didn't even realize, it, but he'd been in the presence of the Lord and his face radiated the light with the glory of God. In Luke chapter two, in that incredible Christmas passage where the angels show up to the shepherd and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, this light, this glory of God, and they were so afraid. And Jesus takes Peter, James, and John into the Mount of Transfiguration. And something happens, and Jesus, it says, his clothes became brilliant white, brighter than anything you could ever bleach. So bright. In Acts chapter nine, When Saul meets Jesus, it's a blinding light that knocks him off of his donkey. And out of this light, he says to him, Lord, who are you? And from cover to cover, from creation to glorification, throughout scripture, there is light. From the opening pages of creation in Genesis to the closing pages of Revelation, you see this picture, the picture of God and light. I mean, at the very beginning... God created the heavens and earth. But then when he starts speaking things into existence, the very first thing in Genesis 1 says, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of the Lord hovering over the waters. And God said, and here's his first one, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. The first thing he speaks into existence is light. And notice he hasn't created the sun yet. It's just light. Well, then you go throughout the story of human history and you get to the culmination in Revelation where John has seen this picture of how things will be when God sets all things right someday. When there's a new heaven and there's a new earth and we dwell in the new Jerusalem, and this is what it says in the closing pages of Scripture about this new Jerusalem in Revelation 21. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb, that's Jesus, that's Jesus the lamb is the lamp. At the beginning, he creates light without a sun. At the end, we don't need the sun because he is the light. And from creation to glorification, there's this picture of light, a literal light, metaphorical light, spiritual light. And then there was this, this promise of another light in the middle of the whole story. The prophet Isaiah gets this picture and he writes these words in Isaiah chapter nine, verse two. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Interesting where he says they have seen as if it's already been done. And yet he's speaking of Jesus who wouldn't be born for another 700 years. And those who are living in, in darkness, a light has dawned, but it hasn't happened yet. Isaiah writes these things and he doesn't know if it's going to be next week or next year or a hundred years. He had no idea it would be six or seven hundred years before this would happen. But because it was spoken of by God, it was as if it was already done. There was a dawning. There was a new day coming. They were still in the darkness, but there was hope because there was light coming. About five weeks ago. Um, I ran a marathon on Snoqualmie Pass and it was, it's a trail marathon. It's on the, the rails to trails. It's an old railroad path. It starts at Hayak. Five miles into the race, uh, we entered into what is the, known as the Snoqualmie Tunnel. It's a, it's a railroad tunnel that was made under Snoqualmie Pass back in 1912 to 1914. They, they, they uh, channeled this tunnel through. And part of the race is running through this tunnel. And you're aware of that. Again, you must have a, a headlamp. And about 50 yards into this tunnel, tunnel, it kind of makes a slight turn to the left, and we had our headlamps on, and our eyes are trying to get adjusted to the dark, you know, with the pupils starting to, to kind of constrict a little bit, and, or uh, dilate a little bit. They'd been constricted out, out there. And we, we do this little turn in this tunnel, and I was in a pace group, and Keith was our pace runner. And as we did this turn, and we're all kind of getting adjusted, we're all in this, in this dark tunnel together with our headlamps, Keith, our pacer, he said, look at that, guys. That's where we're going. It was the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel. But it was literally two and a half miles away. This tunnel is so straight and so flat. We could see where we were going. We weren't there yet. We would be running for the next 22 minutes. There was that light. That's what we were going. Couldn't get lost. Just keep running towards the light. And Isaiah comes along and says, people, that's what's coming. There's a light. There's a light at the end. There's a new day dawning. And it may be hundreds of years, but it's coming. And there is this light. When John writes of this, he writes in John chapter one, verse nine, the true light, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And that's what we're gonna look at today. We're gonna look at this I am statement out of John chapter eight, verse 12, which I've already quoted for you, already tipped the hand on that one. And we're really gonna focus on that one verse. So you don't have to necessarily turn to John chapter 8 because we're not going to cover a lot of the other stuff. I'll give you a summary, however, and I would like to spend more time talking about the context that that verse was spoken spoken in, what was going on. And in fact, uh, yesterday when our elders were praying for our weekend service, they said, Bob, how can we pray? And I said, well, here's one of the ways you can pray I love backstories. I love context. I love the Old Testament. I hope I don't get so deep in the weeds that I lose everybody. So you have been prayed for, for this next portion of this sermon. But I want to give you the the historical, biblical, cultural context with which Jesus was facing when he spoke these words. And so hang in there. And if you get lost, you got a glow stick. So you've got that going for you. To understand this, you have to go back into John chapter 7, verse 2, where it says this, but when the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near, that's what I want us to spend some time on. I want to tell you a little bit about the Jewish feast of tabernacles to understand that fully. If you want to, you can go back to Leviticus 23 and Leviticus 23 God says to Moses, these are the feasts, the festivals that I want my people to to observe every single year. There were seven of them. This was the seventh. This was the last of the seven. Three of them were what was referred to as pilgrimage festivals. And on a pilgrimage festival, all of the the Jewish males who were physically able were required to converge on Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The other four, not so much, but these three, if there was any way possible, they were required to go to Jerusalem. So these were big festivals. This was the third one. The others were uh, Passover in the spring, Pentecost in the summer, and now the the Festival of Tabernacles. It's also referred to as the the Feast or the Festival of Booths. I'll explain that in a minute. Uh, The the Hebrew word would be Sukkot, is the Jewish celebration, the Passover. So of these three, not Passover, the festival, the festival. Of these three, this Feast of the Tabernacles, the Festival of the Tabernacles, was not the most important, but it's the one that they looked forward to the most. Let me illustrate this way We celebrate Christmas and Easter in the church and in our world. Arguably, Easter is way more important than Christmas, but we spend a lot more time planning, exciting, anticipating Christmas. So this was like that. Passover was way more important. But this is the one they look forward to. And on this one, they would all come to Jerusalem, and they would set up these temporary housing units. They were booths, like lean-tos or tents. It was like a big camp out. Now, for some of you say, that would be hell on earth. Others of you would say, that's the best. And if you can just imagine a, a big campout, like a big family reunion, again, some of you would say, that would be the worst. Try to think that... Pretend like you like camping and you like your relatives. You have all of your family, all of your friends, you're all coming together. It's like watershed, it's like Woodstock without drug, sex, and rock and roll. It is like feasting and dancing and music and partying. And everybody's together on this camp out and it goes for seven days and then there's an eighth day where they commemorate and, and it's, a, it's a holy day on it. And so there's this big party, it's a tailgate party, it's a luau, it's a music festival, it's amazing. And they all, even if you lived in Jerusalem, for those days, you would build this lean-to, this tent, this, this temporary dwelling to remember that for 40 years they lived in the desert, in the wilderness, and no one had permanent housing. They were transient. They would use temporary housing so they could pick it up. That's the word tabernacle. Before there was a, a set temple, the tabernacle was portable. It could be moved anywhere. So they would even live if they were in Jerusalem they would live outside of their homes in these booths these tents these lean-tos and during this week there were three things that they were supposed to remember not only being out in the wilderness three things of God's provision now you're going to want to listen because there is going to be a quiz on this one here in just a minute the three things one they were supposed to remember God's provision of the manna that came down from heaven we talked about this 2 weeks ago the manna just giving you one of the, one of the answers to the, quiz, to the quiz, the manna that came down from heaven. The other thing was the water that came out of the rock and how God provided water that came out of the rock. And the third thing was the pillar of fire in the sky that gave them light at night. And so they were to remember these things. They were to commemorate these things. They were to celebrate God's provision and his faithfulness throughout the wilderness. And they did. And they would always look back at what God had done. But as we've seen, when it came to the festivals and when it came to all of the things of the Old Testament, Jesus would, in essence, come back and say, you need to look both ways. Yeah, you need to look back at what God has done. That's good in his faithfulness. But you need to understand that all of those things point to what he will do. Again, as we saw with the manna two weeks ago, that's what God did, but it was, a, it was an imperfect uh, incomplete, insufficient, shadow picture, foreshadowing of what God would do in Jesus. And so, while they're celebrating these things, they're all looking in the rearview mirror, and Jesus is saying, "Yeah, the rearview mirror is small. Make sure you look in the in the in the windshield of what God will do in your very very midst." Now, I'm going to take one little rabbit trail. One little rabbit trail. Here's here's your quiz. This will set us up for the rabbit trail. There were three things that they were, the three provisions that they were supposed to celebrate. The first one was? Manna, the bread, right? The second one was? Water water from the rock, right? And the third one was? The fire, the light in the sky. This is so cool. John chapter six, John chapter seven, John chapter eight. In John chapter six, Jesus talks about how, He is the true bread. The manna they had, he is the fulfillment of that. All of that was pointed to him. John chapter seven. They're celebrating the water that came out of the rock and part of the ritual was that the priest would dip this this, this container into the spring and pour it over the altar and all that. In John chapter seven, verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, he's shouting now in the church, okay? If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Can you imagine this? That Jesus is saying, hey, and is he, disrupting in a loud voice, drawing attention to himself. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And he's talking about what scripture says about him. And if you come and drink from my well, it's not water from a rock, it's water from the rock and it's from within and it will be everlasting water. That, the, the audacity that he would say something like this. Chapter six, he says, I'm the bread of life. Chapter seven, he says, I'm the water that's gonna produce within you. And then there was this fire, there was this flame. Just to remind you of that in Exodus chapter 13. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or by night. And in chapter 8, he talks about being the light of the world. Now, according to the Talmud, which is the oral tradition of the rabbis, this is not biblical, this is the Talmud, this is the oral tradition, that during this feast, in the temple courts, in the, the court of Jewish women, which Jewish men could go there as well, but where the Jewish women could go, the Gentiles couldn't go in there. There were set up these four enormous lamp stands, and according to the Talmud, these four in the, in the corners of the, of the women's court were seventy feet high. And at the top were these big lamps that would hold ten gallons of olive oil, and they would light these these four lamps. In fact, the wick of these lamps were the old priestly garments from the year before. The priests would get new garments. These were the priestly garments from the year before, and they would use them as wicks as they would light these these enormous lampstands, 70 feet tall, these junior priests that said that there would be ladders, and they would have the junior priests go up and pour the oil. The old guys, stay off the ladder. They'd send the young guys up. Stay off the ladder, some of you old guys. They would send the young guys up and pour this oil in, and they would light these lamps. And it was said in the Talmud, That these lamps, think like Olympic torch, four of these things, really high. That these lamps were so bright and so high that there was no courtyard in Jerusalem that was not illuminated by them. It was this picture of God's light that he had given to them as, as guidance. And on the final day of the festival, they would extinguish the lights to remind them that the Messiah had not yet come. With all of that context of everything that's going on, Jesus says in John chapter eight, verse 12, Jesus spoke again to the people. He said, I am, ego emi. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Imagine that. For years they have celebrated these massive lampstands which point back to God's provision in the desert and his light. And every year they would extinguish them hoping that someday the Messiah would come, and Jesus this time says, I I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Of the world. Now, Pastor Brian kind of hit on this last week with Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. And the week before that, we looked at him saying, I am the true bread. I am the bread of life. The word the, it, it, it separates that. There's a singularity to this. You may not be aware of this. Last summer, um, Ohio State University received a patent on one of the most common words in the English language. They received a patent to be able to use the word, the. You may remember, may not, starting about in the 90s, when football players would introduce themselves and they would tell what school they were from, the football players from Ohio State University would go this way. Hi, my name is Bubba Unibrow (laughs) from the Ohio State University. And they were instructed to put the in front of Ohio State University. Don't just say Ohio State. Don't say Ohio State University. Say the Ohio State University. And it kind of became a case. The reason being is that Ohio State University has the initials OSU. But so does Oklahoma State University, Cowboys. And so does Oregon State University, Beavers. They didn't want to be just another OSU. They were the OSU. There's a singularity to that. And Jesus comes along and says, I am not a light in the world. I am the light of the world. That distinguishes him from everyone else. He's not just another Buddha, another Mohammed, another Confucius, another Moses, another spiritual guru, another teacher, another healer, another spiritual leader, another religious founder. No, he is the light of the world. And when he says that, it's this this claim of divine exclusivity. He sets himself apart. You can imagine that some of the people that are hearing this, the Jewish listeners, the followers are saying, who is he to say that? You know what? Today, people are still asking that question. Who is he to say that? This is where Jesus and Christians are often thought to be narrow-minded and bigoted and, you know, closed and all this. Well, here's the truth. If that's the title I get for saying that Jesus is the light, then I'll take that title it's not, it's not because we don't love, it's because it's the truth. We'll hear more about that next week. The way, the truth, the life. And he sets himself apart that he isn't just one amongst many, one of the options, one of the ways. He is the light of the world. It's the centrality of Christ. He is the light, the sun which all lesser orbs revolve around that's why here at Cornwall Church our whole purpose is to help people find and follow Jesus it's all about Jesus he's at the center so he says to them I am the light of the world whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life yes it is exclusive but he also says I'm the light of of the world. So while there's exclusivity, there's an offer of radical inclusivity. He doesn't say, I am the light of the angels. I am the light of heaven. I am the light of priests. I'm the light of Jewish men. I'm the light of the Jewish nation. I'm the light of those who are religious, those who are disciplined, those who are spiritual. He says, I am the light of the world. There's an openness, and I love this, because they've just come off of this festival where there's these, these massive lampstands that point back to God's light that guided in the wilderness, and it's almost as he says, that thing back there, what God did for you, for 40 years, granted, but just for you, that pointed to me that I would be the light to guide not just for 40 years, but for the rest of eternity. And not just for a a, a nomad group of Jewish people in the wilderness, but for the world. Inclusivity, whoever can follow this light. You know, when um, when I was thinking about this whole idea of the exclusivity and the inclusivity that, that is both in Jesus, I was thinking about like cars. And sometimes when you buy a car they have different trim packages, and sometimes the trim packages are distinguished by letters. Now, I'm kind of making this up a little bit because I don't know. I don't have it necessarily a car in mind, but like they'll say, well, here's this car, but here's the LS package, and then here's the uh, XS passage package, and then here's the XLR. You know what I'm talking about? And each one has more bells and whistles and a higher price tag, but there's more that comes with it. And then when you get to the very top of the whole thing, they say, well, and this is the limited edition which the very word limited is exclusive. Like, not everybody will have this one. This one will set you apart from all the other soccer moms. You're driving the limited. Still a minivan, but it's limited. (laughs) Several years ago, there was a twist on this, because that that limited was like, oh, just, you know, and oh, it's exclusive. Jeep Wrangler came out and their package was Unlimited. Like, there's no limits here. The sky's the limit. You can go wherever, whenever, however far. This one's unlimited. And I'm thinking about Jesus. He's saying, yes, I'm the way. There's an exclusivity, but it's unlimited. I am the light of the world. And whoever, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever, an invitation to a personal reality. Not just for the cosmos, not just for all of creation, but for you, and for you, and for you, and for you. That whoever would follow me will never walk in darkness. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time focusing on that concept, bringing it home to the individual. I mentioned earlier when, when we were in the dark, actually, most of the time when I preach, some of you are in the dark. <laughs> or maybe it's me. <laughs> uh, I, I talk about what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he says to his followers, you are the light of the world. And they probably had no concept of what he was even talking about. But the idea of his people, his followers being the light of the world was not a brand new concept like proclaimed on the Sermon on the Mount. This is the way that God had always intended it to be. So if you go back to Isaiah chapter 42, it says this, I the Lord have called you in righteousness. He's talking to his people, to the Israelites, to Jewish people. I have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people. Notice God says, you're my covenant people, but it's not just you and me. I'm going to make you a covenant for the people and not just that. And a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. This is always God's plan. When he calls Abraham, he says, I'm going to bless you. Not just so you can sit on your blessings. I'm going to bless you so you can be a blessing to the whole world. I'm going to make you a great nation so that you can bless all of the nations of the world. The Jewish people are my chosen people for a purpose to be able to bring light to the Gentiles. Gentiles. Yes, he was called, they were called apart for a purpose of making a difference, to carry on his redemptive, his kingdom work on the p- face of the planet. And then he gets specific. To open the eyes of the blind, those that cannot see, I want you to elimin- illuminate them. I want you to, to inform them. And, and those captives that are in prison, like they've been, they've been captive, it's not anything they did wrong. They're innocent, but they're locked in, there. I want you to free them. And, and those in the dungeons, they're there by, maybe they're guilty and they sit in darkness. I want you to release them. I want them to know that there's liberty and there's freedom. I want this for my people. And yet there was this mindset that creeped into the Israelites that, no, no, we're the exclusive chosen people of God. And sometimes that creeps into the mind of the followers of Jesus Christ, the church. So back to this phrase that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Let me give you one more contextual setting that it was said in. If you have your Bibles open, which I told you not to, but if you do, some of you know that I skipped over the first 11 verses of John chapter 8. And we won't spend a lot of time on this, but John chapter 8, it might be in parentheses or have an asterisk or a footnote saying that this part is not found in some of the earliest and most reliable manuscripts of the copy of John that we have. And we can talk all day about that if we wanted, but we're not going to. Most commentators would say, what happens in John 8, 1-11? Really, there's little doubt that it actually happened. The question is, did it happen here, and why is it not in the early ones? Regardless, in the scriptures that we have, it's put there. So for the rest of my sermon, we're going to put those arguments away and say, this is when it happens." Here's what happens. After this seven, eight-day festival, Feast of the Tabernacles, incredible party reunion, you know, music festival in Jerusalem. the next day, Jesus goes back into the temple. And he begins to teach. This was not uncommon. Rabbis would often go to the temple courts and the porticoes there with their disciples and they would teach them, they would train them. Jesus goes and says, and all the people came. You can imagine why. Just a few days before, he interrupted the entire procession to say that, that if they were thirsty, they should come to him. And not long before that, he had said something about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And Jesus, you just never knew what was gonna happen with him. And some of them had heard about the miracles. And some of them had seen them. And some of them had experienced them. And some of them had heard about these confrontations with the Pharisees. So even if you weren't a follower of Jesus, you ought to go to this church because you never know what's going to happen. So he's in the temple courts and he's teaching. My guess is hundreds, maybe thousands, because they've all been in town, are coming to hear this man Jesus that they've heard so much about. It says, as he sits down to teach, which was how a rabbi would teach, he would sit down to teach. They're in the temple courts, and over across the way, there's a bit of a commotion. There's a a band of religious leaders, Pharisees, teachers of the law, in all their robes and regalia and their prayer shawls and all their head, all that are coming across the courtyard, and and there's some scuffling and there's some, some whispering, and people begin to point because there's another one with them one that isn't one of them. In fact, it's odd because never would you see a group of Pharisees with a woman. But there's a woman. They're not touching her. Maybe with a stick, they're poking her, but she's walking. And what is that that she's wearing? I mean, she's barefoot. Her hair is down. She she looks like she's Naked, wrapped up in a bed sheet. And people are pointing and murmuring, what's going on? And as Jesus comes there as he's teaching, they march her right to the front and stand her right in front of Jesus and the hundreds, maybe thousands of people that are there to hear him talk. And the Pharisees say to Jesus, interrupting his teaching, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. To bring that kind of accusation against him when you had to have at least two witnesses... You wonder how many people were witnessing and how long did they witness this one? And for the act of adultery, one of the parties is conspicuously missing the male. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses commands that we stone her. And here she is, eyes swollen, tears, humiliation, guilt, shame, embarrassment, wishing that she would just die, trying to stay somewhat modest with this sheet wrapped around her. And they said, Jesus, what do you say we should do? They don't care about this woman. They don't care about the law of Moses. They just want to corner Jesus. And scripture said, Jesus bent down and began to write on the ground. And there have been so many sermons and speculations on what he was writing. I've preached a few myself. But he begins writing on the ground. And I love what Dale Bruner in his commentary on John says about this. That maybe, just maybe, out of divine compassion, the reason Jesus knelt down to write on the ground was to draw attention to himself and off of this woman who is so humiliated embarrassed that he cares for her in this moment. And it says as he's riding on the ground, the Pharisees keep peppering him with questions. You know what the law says, what should we do? What do you say, Jesus? What are you gonna do? What are we gonna do with this one? And I wonder as Jesus is there, if his heart is breaking for this woman, sitting in darkness in a dungeon of sin. If his heart is breaking for these Pharisees who are supposed to be representing God and are using the word of God to weaponize against this woman and his heart is breaking for these hundreds or thousands of people who are watching all this and realizing that's the example that they get of what it means to be God's people. And Jesus stands up, and I wonder, with tears in his eyes, possibly, he looks at the Pharisees and says, whoever is without sin, throw the first stone at her. He honors the word of God, the standard of God's holiness, but does not weaponize it against someone who is guilty. in this public trial, when he says, whoever is without sin, throw the first stone, suddenly the prosecutors are being prosecuted. The accusers have become indicted. And it says that Jesus stooped down again and began to write on the ground And again, Bruner says, what if he does this now so that the attention is drawn to him and not onto the guilty Pharisees because he even cares for the Pharisees, allowing them the opportunity to bow out gracefully. And they do. They begin to leave, starting with the oldest, until they're all gone, When Jesus stands up, and here's this woman who's been on public trial. And Jesus has kind of been the public defender for her, but now he's the prosecutor, the judge, and the jury. And he cross examines her, he he puts her on the witness stand, and he asks her two questions. But what's really interesting is the questions that he doesn't ask. He doesn't ask, don't you know what the law of God says? Why did you do this? How could you do this? What am I supposed to do with you in this circumstance? He doesn't ask those questions at all. Verse 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, which dignifies her, woman, question one, where are they? It takes two witnesses to accuse someone. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Notice the questions, out of his mercy, he does not ask for an explanation of her actions. He asked about information of her trial. Questions not even about her, but about them. The grace of Jesus. And the only words she says in the whole exchange are these words. No one, sir. No one. So now Jesus, the righteous judge of the world, The only sinless one brings down the verdict. The verdict is this. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. He didn't say she's not guilty. What he said is, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Not condoning anything, but I'm not condemning you. So now you have Jesus, whom God did not send in the world to condemn the world, but that the world be saved through him, comes to her with no condemnation, as it says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His verdict I don't condemn you. And the sentence, The sentence, go now and leave your life of sin. That's the sentence, not a condemnation. It's an invitation, an invitation to leave this dungeon where you sit in the darkness of your sin. You don't have to live that way anymore. And now with hundreds of people taking all of this in, watching this, listening to this, he looks up. To them, and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That's my story. That's my story. He's not just the light of the world. He's the light of my world. 31 years ago next month, August of 1992, I was at the lowest part of my life. Jesus did not condemn me. He invited me to live in his light. What a beautiful picture. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, going back to Genesis 1, the creation, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And he invites us not only to experience the light of Christ, to live in that light but to be the light of the world. In Ephesians, it says this, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. I heard an interview just uh, a week or so ago with a gentleman named Steve Camp. He was a musician in the 90s. And he said this line, the holiness of God, not compromised. The mercy of God, not restrained. That's how Jesus lived, and that's how he calls us, as his followers, to be the light of the world, the holiness of God, not compromised, the mercy of God, unrestrained. I am the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Live in the light.